Welcome to the Evolving Executive Podcast, the podcast for executives and other leaders who want real talk about what it takes to be a leader and the lessons you learn along the way. I'm your host, Mary, from Evolve Your Performance, and I'm excited to share some amazing conversations I've had so that we can learn together. Before we get started, I've got a gift for you. As an executive and leader, I understand all too well how taking action on what you learn is just as, if not more important than the learning itself. That's why every month I'd share the most important knowledge nuggets from the interviews, along with my insights on how to take action. If you're interested in leveling up your leadership and receiving the show notes from today's and other episodes, you can sign up at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. So today I'm excited to welcome Kathy Bookbar to the podcast. Kathy has quite a record of public service. With a law degree in hand, she started by representing low-income, disabled, and senior clients, as well as victims of domestic violence at North Penn Legal Services. After her work at the nonprofit, she continued focusing on employment law, election law, and civil rights as a partner at Bookbar and Yeager. She was the executive director of Lifecycle Women Care and has continued her public service as the general counsel to the Pennsylvania Auditor General and senior advisor to the Pennsylvania governor on election modernization. She went on to serve as secretary of state for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where she helped Pennsylvania navigate a very visible election at the height of the pandemic. Now, as the president of Athena Strategies, she continues her quest for a stronger democracy, working with various organizations, government officials, and academic institutions to make our elections more secure and transparent. Phew, what a mouthful. (laughs) So today, I'm honored to have her on the show to talk about leadership and the lessons she's learned along the way. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me, Mary. So let's jump right in talking about your leadership journey. When's the first time you remember thinking that leadership might be for you and that you might actually enjoy it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I have been fortunate to have had multiple journeys within my journey. Um, So I think, you know, in some ways, you know, I first had had ambitions of leadership on the micro level as an attorney really making a difference on the ground with clients, helping make sure that that I was the best lawyer and the best advocate for my clients as possible. And then later when I was recruited to run for public office, um, I that was maybe the first time, so I was recruited in, in 2011 to run for Commonwealth Court Judge and then 2012 to run for Congress. And that was probably the first time that I thought about leadership on a much broader governmental level. And uh, and and that changed my life. Um, even though I lost those races, that changed my life. And then later I had the, the acknowledgement because of the run for Congress really, and I could talk about that some. When, when I ran for Congress, I learned through the process that I loved having a million balls in the air at one time. And I loved, you know, managing staff and dealing with policy and fundraising and, you know, field work and, you know, communications. And, and I thought about, well, if I lose this race, what does one do with that? What should I do with that? Because that's very different than practicing law uh, in a law. And I thought, well, you know, be an executive, be an executive for an organization or an entity where I really care about the mission. And that's what I went on to do, both at Lifecycle Women Care and later as Secretary of State. So, you know, I think the message that I would give for anyone considering this is be open to what may come your way, because a lot of it may not be planned. (laughs) Yeah, so you've got this kind of self-leadership piece as a lawyer, really making sure that you're leading yourself to make the greatest impact. And then you've got this kind of global leadership piece where it's almost like you went from zero to 100, right? (laughs) Where You didn't worry about managing a team or anything like that. You went straight from managing self to managing a whole state (laughs) and the whole team (laughs) that puts the state together or a whole organization. 
So what are, you said the running for office really changed your life from, uh, obviously from the perspective of what you were looking to do with your life. How, what are other, some other ways that that transition time in your life really impacted your, your beliefs or changed your life, as you said? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Of course, it, it changed my life almost across the board in every way. I, I have a daughter, and when I ran for Congress, uh, she was around 13. And when I ran for Commonwealth Court, you know, she was around 12. And, um, and I was traveling, particularly when I ran for Commonwealth Court, it's a statewide office. And so I was traveling around the state, and it was really the first time that I was spending significant amounts of time away from her. And then when I ran for Congress, it was sort of all consuming. So even though my district was much smaller, it wasn't statewide. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's an all consuming enterprise to run for Congress. And, you know, I think so on the family level, it was really interesting, because of course, as a mother, you, um, you know, you, you worry about impact on your children of any choices that you make. And I think one of the um, most rewarding things that happened at the end of after I lost that race was I was having dinner with my daughter one night, just the two of us, and we were talking about you know how it was. This was within a couple, within a year or two maybe of having run, and I was you know asking her what it was like for her and what her perspective was on it. And she said, I'm glad you ran and I'm glad you lost because she she loved seeing the leadership. It was important to her to see me out there talking about these things, you know, standing up for these policies and these, you know, um, ethical you know, positions. But because I lost, we got to spend more time together thereafter in those formative high school years for her. Um, and so I thought that was incredibly um, meaningful to have both those reactions. Yeah, I love that. How how insightful for a 15-year-old or whatever, you know, to have that. Um, I'm really glad I could see you have a voice and stand up for what you believe in. And I'm glad you lost because I can have my mom back. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's amazing. So you talk about this idea of being open to the opportunities that come your way. Um, I'd love to kind of talk about your accidental successes, if you will, in terms of what are some of the things that you learned about leadership, either by accidental successes or even accidents in terms of things that went right or wrong um, and how that shaped who you are as a leader. Yeah, I mean, so on the, you know, on the positive side and back to what where we talked about earlier, you know, I feel like becoming Secretary of State was completely an accidental success. Um, you know, mo I think years ago, most people had no idea that state secretaries of state existed or that they were in most states, their chief election officials. And it, it was just a below the radar kind of thing. And when I was a voting rights lawyer for a national civil rights organization between 2008 and 2010, that was when I first discovered the Pennsylvania Department of State and the important work they do on elections. And I worked with them on the other side of the table um, as an advocate. And so, um, so at that point, I thought, so in, in Pennsylvania, Secretary of State is appointed by the governor in most states, it is an elected position. But in, in Pennsylvania, you really have to somehow get to know the governor in order to be appointed. And I was not in that position. Um, and so, you know, I so it was kind of like, yeah, sure, it was a it was a dream in some ways, um, but I didn't think it would ever happen. And 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 interestingly, even before that, I should go back a little bit. Because the my a lot of times you'll find election officials or former election officials, we talk about ourselves as being accidental election professionals. For me, my first job in elections was as a poll worker. And 
And that only happened because I walked into voting one day and uh, one of the poll workers said, you know, we're, we need a poll worker. Um, we're, we're down for the next election. Are you willing to serve? And I said, sure. You know, it had never occurred to me to serve as a poll worker. So I did it that one time. This is the mid 2000s. And it changed my life. I, I, you never feel more like you're part of the wheel of democracy than you do when you are literally helping people vote. And so from there on, I sort of got the, you know, the election bug, the, you know, fell in love with being the work that goes into elections. So if I hadn't become a poll worker, which was accidental, and then I wouldn't have become a voting rights lawyer, which was accidental, and I wouldn't have become secretary of state, which happened because a position happened to become vacant. And I happened to have mutual colleagues who encouraged the governor and I to speak. And he asked me to serve. So um, so being open to all those things led me to what was, you know, the honor and privilege of a lifetime. I love that. So it brings up two things in my mind. Uh, and the first one I want to talk about is kind of it seems as though like when you talked about this idea of a poll worker and really feeling like part of the wheels of democracy and things like that, that's a special talent to be able to have the brain space to reflect and find the meaning in the situation. A lot of poll workers or just any kind of worker goes through their day in a much more transactional, less self-reflective way. I'd love to kind of pull that thread a little bit, if you will, in terms of, did, do you explicitly do that? Is that something that just comes natural? How do you pull the meaning out of the work that you do to kind of create those, you know, we uh, passion lanes for yourself to kind of follow? That's a great question. Um, I, you know, I guess I have to start with my parents because I think that they made me, you know, gave me all the foundations for probably where I got there. You know, I think of, so I, I'll, you know, I think my parents both led me to aspire you know, to shoot for the stars, to aspire to do whatever I wanted to do. But they also, um, they also built in with me, but you can't do it unless you can also plan on how to get there. Um, my dad was incredibly practical that way. So I feel like, um, and the intellectual um, pursuit, my mom is very much a language linguistics person. So in many ways, the whole reason why I became a lawyer was because of the love of words. And when I appreciated, uh, when I took my first legal studies class in college and I suddenly learned that law is not black and white, it's gray. And it really all comes down to how you interpret the words. Like that was based on linguistics initially. Um, and then it became mixed with you know, mission and passion to change the world, which again came from my parents. So, you know, I think the the being able to see, to be sitting in the, you know, precinct, the polling place, and to just literally be able to connect the small micro work that leads to the macro democracy you know, I think that it was probably those mix of things that were uh, inspired by my parents. I love that. Do you, doing what you're doing now, it's, of, of course, it seems very in line with that aha moment as a poll worker, but do you still find that time to kind of reflect and reconnect to that passion in your current role, even now that you're having those thousand balls in the air and, and things like that. How do you make space for that reflection and connection now? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to con to continue in these roles with this work. And so the work that I'm doing now is really doing this on the national level. And so I'm working with organizations who are in this space who share the passion for democracy and election security, as well as with you know, schools. So I get to, I get the passion of the youth, right. Um, and creativity, um, and, you know, and beyond and, and with election officials who frankly are, you know, you know, overworked and underpaid and subject to, you know, t terrifying, horrible circumstances today that didn't used to be something we had to worry about. And now they're subject to intimidation and threats um, and harassment of all kinds. And so to be able to continue to provide support um, and inspiration and communications and all of that with such remarkable partners is, is such a privilege. How do relationships and networks play, partnerships play in terms of your leadership journey, your professional journey as a whole? Yeah, I think, you know, relationships are huge, uh, it, hugely important in anything that you do. And so one of my favorite things throughout the last many years has been the my sort of introduction to and then development of cross-sector collaboration. So it's not just enough to have the partners that are like you and you know share a perspective, you need to reach beyond that in order to really be able to have the most impact. And so, for example, in when I was Secretary of State, um, we created a statewide. We we, we I talk a, a lot of times about both vertical and horizontal cross sector collaboration. So vertical being the federal, state, and local, and then horizontal is the cross-sector at each level. So in Pennsylvania um, in 2018, um, starting in 2018, we created a interagency election security and preparedness work group. So what we did was we took, so I was in the Department of State then, and we, we reached out to agencies and the governor's office. Uh, this was, you know, really a, a joint project where we, we connected various agencies, at the state level who had all been touching on election security in some regard, but everybody was doing it in these separate silos. And so we had at the table, we connected at the table, the department of state, the office of, uh, the Office of Information Technology, which also included the CISO, the Information Security Officer. Uh, we had the Pennsylvania State Police. We had the National Guard. Um, we had the Pennsylvania Inspector General. Um, we I always miss at least one person. I'll probably think of it in two seconds. But so there were maybe eight, and, and plus the state and federal Office of Homeland Security folks. And so we started collaborating and meeting regularly. And so by the time, you know, a couple of meetings in, we realized what a huge gain that was for, for citizens of the Commonwealth, because we were learning so much from the work that we were doing to, you know, that we were separately doing, we were able to use it in our own realms, but then we also did things together. So we sent, you know, we, we were able to provide tabletop exercises. To, we were able to kind of connect the the horizontal and the vertical um, cross-sector collaboration and share these resources across the Commonwealth to the counties as well. I remembered one that I forgot, Pima, a very important partner, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. And then we also started staging election day operations at Pima's headquarters together. Um, and so, so, Yes, this is very election security focused, but across the board, we did this when I was executive director of Lifecycle Women Care, where you know our staff was was nurses and nurse midwives and nurse practitioners, um, but we also had backup physicians. So of course, we worked closely with the hospitals, and 
you know, insurance companies, all these things. And one of the things that I did was I started an annual symposium called the State of Women's Health, where I connected all the different pieces in one room to make sure that we were having integrative health care. So I'll, I know that was a very long answer, but um, I think that that's one of my favorite things is that cross-sector collaboration. Well, and as an organizational OD change management person, it makes my heart sing. I love that horizontal and vertical collaboration because that's exactly what you do in any organization for any change. You know, you've got your executives who might be the impetus You've got the middle managers who are going to have to translate and roll out the change. And you've got the frontline people who really know whether the implementation is actually going to work or not. And then you've got all the departmental silos. So from a change perspective, we also do the same thing as we bring everybody together to try to really design a change initiative that will pull everything together. So absolutely a best practice. And it just makes me happy to hear about it. So congrats. That's That's great. So something that surprises a lot of people is that I find our change leaders are really tend to be rebels of some kind. Uh, What is the most harebrained idea you've ever implemented successfully as a leader? That's a fun question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a good question. And um, and it's funny because I feel like really you should ask my staff because <laughs> <right? laughs> <laughs> um, they probably would come up with things that, that maybe I didn't even realize was harebrained, uh, were harebrained. But um, I guess, you know, there were some things that um, only became harebrained that maybe were not even my ideas, but were harebrained in the just even thinking that you could implement them right at all. Um, but if, if, if you want me to take responsibility for the idea itself, I'll, I'll go with, um, I'll go with, we did, so in Pennsylvania, statutorily, there are these, um, this very sort of outdated provision on post-election audit. It's, it was, it was, you know, put into the statute, I forget what years, it's like, I don't know, 75 years ago or something, long time ago, before there were kind of modern, mathematically, scientifically designed post-election audits. And so it doesn't, it doesn't do everything that we would like a post-election audit to do. And so, so when I came into office and we, um, we required all the counties to upgrade their voting systems, to new uh, secure and accessible voting systems. That was in, and maybe that should be my example. It wasn't completely my idea. It was also the governor's idea, but but I told him we could do it. Um, so maybe that means I, you know, it becomes my idea. So so I'll combine these two things. So in 2018, we required that all counties upgrade their voting systems to new systems meeting the highest standards of security and accessibility and all having a voter verifiable paper trail, which we were at that point, one of the last states in the country that was um, no longer, that had not transitioned to that yet. And we just, we said, you know, you have to do this no later than the primary of 2020. And so that was a two year process, but um, that's pretty quick for this kind of thing. And so it was a major enterprise for counties. And so, but, but I had studied it. I had talked to lots of other states and I was very confident that we could do it. And then in addition to that, um, we were going to, we were going to pilot these new, what are called risk limiting audits, which are new kind of much more mathematically scientifically designed to be able to help confirm that the outcome of an election was correct. So so getting that all to to move forward in that two year period um, was, you know, uh, immense. Um, but then on top of that, the legislature passed Act 77 in 2019, which made more changes to how elections are run and how voters vote in Pennsylvania than at any time in like the last 80 years. So on top of the new voting systems, we then had this major changes to voting and elections. And then of course, COVID-19 hit 
right? And so, and that could, we, none of us could have predicted, but it was the layering of the biggest challenges that we've had in the last ever <laughs> um, to then carry it out and end up having, you know, the having more, we, we cracked 9 million registered voters in Pennsylvania for the first time ever, which was 300,000 more than ever before. And we had 800,000 more Pennsylvanians vote in 2020 than ever before in history, despite all those layers of challenges, right? And then to go circle back to where I started about the risk limiting audits, even though we had COVID and all the crazy that happened in 2020, we really knew that we had to do the pilot that we had planned on having, even despite the COVID outbreaks. Um, so we would be able to say, here is actual scientific confirmation that the outcome of the 2020 election was correct. But I had no statutory authority to mandate the counties to do it. And of course they were all exhausted, totally had done an amazing job in 2020, but I had to ask them to do more. And so I asked, our, you know, our team reached out, was, you know, really trying to be there in every way, shape and form for our counties. We have 67 counties in Pennsylvania and we were able to get 63 out of 67 counties to voluntarily take this extra step so that we could actually say, yes, the, the results of this audit mirror the results that have been reported for the presidential election of 2020. Wow. But yeah, that's really impressive. Talk about um, influ influential power as opposed to positional power <laughs> when you have no authority to ask, but uh, you ask anyway, and almost everybody complies. So, so actually, let's pull that thread a little bit in terms of that influential power, because part of that relationship partnership piece is a lot of influence and not a lot of we'll do it because I say so type of leadership. So talk to me a little bit about how you developed. I mean, I guess the lawyer being a lawyer doesn't hurt, but how did you develop that kind of influential power with your relationships and networks as opposed to always having statutory or positional power over asking people to do something? Well, this goes back to the relationships that you mentioned earlier. Um, and this is both internal and external relationships. And it also loops back in the cross-sector collaboration, right? So to me, the team is so critical. And, you know, the definition of team can be micro and it could be macro. Um, I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, well, I've been, and I shouldn't, this is not just about the Department of State, though it includes the Department of State, both at you know, life cycle women care and Department of State and other places where I've worked, uh, but those two in particular, um, the team, the internal team was phenomenally dedicated and creative and open. And, you know, and so I think it's it's been a goal of mine and, you know, the degree to which you can actually achieve that goal it varies from moment to moment, but the goal has always, my goal has always been to make sure that the team feels heard, right? And make sure that I listen when the team is expressing their feedback and that, and also external stakeholders, right? So in, in, in most states, running elections is an, a partnership between the counties and the state and to some degree the federal um, agencies as well, though mostly state and local. Um, and so, for example, when I was trying to get everybody on board with replacing their voting systems, and even that I did have the authority to mandate, but it wasn't going to happen smoothly and it wasn't going to be in the best interest of the voters unless there was buy-in, right? So I travel around the state meeting with county commissioners and election folks from different counties so that they could ask me questions and we could answer those questions and support them in every way. And same with Lifecycle Women Care. We, we initially were called the birth center. And when I first started there, they had been the birth center for 35 years, I think, if I recall correctly at that time. And 
you know, we decided that we wanted to expand our footprint and expand how we were perceived because we were also providing, you know, menopausal care and GYN care throughout the ages. And with a name like the birth center, you're probably going to miss some people who are past the birth phase. <laughs> so we created a, um, you know, a work group basically of board members and uh, staff of everything from administration to, you know, nurses to nurse midwives. We got feedback from clients and the community um, to develop a new name, to develop a new website, to how we talked about ourselves. So to me, the team is what is the strength of any organization. But you've led some pretty incredible transformations you know, that's what you were talking about, rebranding and, um, you know, implementing new audit rules and new um, voting machines. Those are huge change management efforts that you led through that collaborative kind of experiential relationship driven process. And those are all of the things that make changes no matter what. So, you know, for the listeners, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's election security or rebranding a nonprofit or, a, you know, implementing something for their strategic goal that year, that kind of communication and um, listening to all the people, developing that trust, making sure they understand the why, being centralized on the singular purpose of that change. Um, is all kind of best practice around making that successful. So whether that was deliberate or um, <laughs> or, or not, uh, you definitely uh, figured that figured out the cheat code for those types of changes. <laughs> I love it, cheat code. So do you think that the, the thing that um, spoke to me as you were talking is that a lot of your teams and a lot of your choices in terms of where you wanted to lead has been around a singular mission. And I mean, every organization has a mission, but not every organization is as mission driven as it seems the organizations that you have chosen to be a part of are. And I'm wondering if you think that that kind of mission driven piece means that the teams are more likely to gel because they all sh are attracted to the organization for the same reason? Do you think there's a benefit to having that mission driven or do you think it might be something else? Hmm. I think some of it, some of it is certainly the mission driven. You know, when I think of the, the life cycle woman care, I feel like, you know, that, um, that shared, you know, support for women's health and integrative health care certainly was key and and holistic health care. Right. I mean, the it was really a very uh, client centric model. And that so that helps strengthen that team and the connection among that team and the incredibly hard work and dedication among that team. The Department of State. Um, to some degree, I mean, so though we've spent all our time talking about elections, um, the Department of State also oversees professional licensing and uh, not, you know, corporations and charitable organizational filings, as well as the State Athletic Commission. The least known fact about the Department of State is that if you, you know, wanted to be a professional wrestler or kickboxer, uh, you would go through us. Uh, so I enjoyed that random. Uh, little entrepreneurial side of, of, uh, of the department. Um, but so there were, and there were 500 employees. And so it's quite a mix. That's a much more diverse uh, mix of people who are there for all different reasons. But, um, but within, within the teams, uh, well, across the team, like I will say, you know, I had the most generally the most incredible leadership team in the Department of State and folks came from all different backgrounds, um, Republicans, Democrats, independents, people who were professionals, people who had just worked their way up, had never gone to college. 
and just all bringing their, you know, their A game mostly was just incredible. Um, and, and connection to each other. I mean, I have to say when I left Lifecycle Women Care, some of my coworkers were funny because, you know, the, it was Lifecycle Women Care was, you know, maybe the most nurturing workplace environment you could possibly imagine. Um, and I think everybody thought, well, you know, you're going from here to Harrisburg. <laughs> it's going to be like very, you know, stiff and you're not going to be able to really express yourself. And instead, in the Department of State, I found um, colleagues and uh, people who have now become lifelong friends who supported each other in a really special way through an incredibly difficult time. Um, so, so I, so my, that was a very long answer to your question, which is I think it's a mix of both. I think elections folks, anybody in elections, pretty much. It is, it is remarkable how much it does feel like a family. I meet election officials across the country and um, it's like we understand each other without even knowing each other, uh, particularly if they sort of live through 2020. Um, so that, that um, mission definitely adds, but it wasn't the only thing it's just a really tough time to lead and you're now leading an organization um, outside of government working nationally. So I'm assuming there has to be some kind of stability and, and status quo, and, but you're also focusing on advocating and innovation and change. How do you, in your own organization, kind of balance clarity and calm and balance and with the need for kind of advocating and you know challenging the status quo how do you balance those two elements uh, in a way that keeps you and everybody around you sane yeah it's it is a tough time to be in in this field for sure and so i think um I think that mission that you talked about uh, is hugely important at this point. And so the that so it's basically, you know, balancing the the stress of the negativity and the harassment and such that folks are facing now with the inspiration to protect that democracy, to rebuild, you know, what we've lost and to spread accurate information about elections again um, and build, you know, we, we strengthen faith. Um, so, so I think, and you know, the post COVID world, right. And so much more now is, is remote. Um, so that's a whole other, that's a whole other category of, um, well, you're in change management. I don't need to tell you, right? Um, so, you know, like for example, before I went back on my own and opened Athena Strategies, I was vice president of election operations for the Center for Internet Security, a national cybersecurity and election security organization. And that is completely that's become remote um, after having been an in-person organization. And so I was starting in a new existing organization. Um, with existing teams and new team um, members. Um, doing that remotely, I think, was hard. It was hard. Um, I think having started my own organization now, uh, it's easier because there's more ability to build those relationships um, and, you know, demonstrate whatever it is that you want to demonstrate. So the reliability of, you know, quick response and some of it is not healthy. And I'll just state that, you know, for the record, like I know that um, we shouldn't be tied to our phones and responding instantaneously, but the truth is that also builds relationships, right? And so if, if you demonstrate that you're there, that you could take care of what needs to be taken care of um, you could support those election officials. You could uh, promote, you know, the accurate dissemination of information, and you can do so while also laughing and supporting and inspiring. Um, what more can you ask? 
Yeah. You know, we talk about work-life balance a lot, um, but a lot of times it's more just harmonizing rather than it is truly balancing. Like you don't have, I don't have anymore, at least full-time work time and full-time personal time. You know, when I worked in an organization where I didn't have anything except a BlackBerry to tether me to the office, right? <laughs> I couldn't take anything out of the office because it was a top secret you know, facility. And so, and the phone never rang because everybody left at 4.30. There was a distinct buckets of time that were separate. Um, but now it's more about, I can go on a walk while I'm having a conversation and it can weave in and out between real business stuff as well as like, hey, how's your kid? You know, and 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 it is a really much more about the harmonizing of the two rather than having those distinct buckets of time. That's well said. And I think, you know, but, and and I 100% agree. Having said that, um, leaders need to do better at also recognizing it's important for our teams to have 100% separation as well, right? And for ourselves, you know, to be able to go on vacation um, and really go on vacation and let others, you know, do their thing. Um, is also important. So it's it's even more challenging in this hybrid, you know, workforce time than it I think it's ever been. Yeah, I, I was talking to um, someone just the other day about boundaries and burnout, and um, you know, I think that's you have a lot more people experiencing burnout, and I think it's because you know, yes, you have this kind of harmonizing. But a part of that is respecting a boundary when somebody sets one. And um, a lot of times the harmonizing, especially for us leaders, we can we can say, oh, well, is that boundary really, you know, solid? <laughs> can we push that a little bit? And once you start crossing boundaries, it becomes easier and easier to continue to disrespect the boundaries. And then all of a sudden you've got no boundaries and people who are really burnt out. Well said. So you have done some amazing things um, as a leader and you've got, you know, all of these executives and other leaders that you have partnered with and work with and, and everybody listening on the call. What are some, what's like one piece of advice that you would give other executives and leaders based on what you've learned and what you do the successfully, um, especially around leading today and right now, what's the piece of advice you would give? Yeah, I guess I would go back to the listening, the listening to your team um, and the trust in your team, though it's it's challenging sometimes. Um, and in, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked that much about, but sort of the balancing of the micromanaging uh, thing is a thing. Right. And it's funny because, you know, I think you like perspectives on what it means to micromanage. Um, it, it varies tremendously. I remember, you know, um, you know, in a prior job, you know, I'm trying to think of how it was said, but like there was, there was some uh, mention that perhaps I was micromanaging. Um, but when I think, but then later, I saw an extreme, like extreme micromanager. Um, and so I feel like I was practically hands off by by contrast, but it's all relative, right? And so the key, you know, I think the key is as a leader, giving your staff the tools they need to, you know, bring the best of them forward and then trust them. Um, while also, of course, not giving up the opportunities to to lead. And sometimes the leader needs to make a quick decision and it may not be what the team, you know, advises, um, but you have to factor it in. You have to factor in. And if you're and support your team, um, listen to to what their needs are, because if you I've seen some real fails um, on the part of leaders where, um, and that's when people leave, right? People don't, people who, 
who feel engaged in their work, trusted in their work, and have the support that they need, um, it's often, oftentimes those things are more important than the exact dollars that they're getting in their pockets, right? Um, and it's oftentimes the fail of the leader that drives people out. Um, and by fail, I mean not doing those things that I said, you know, not supporting, not empowering. Um, and then, of course, if you add in the extreme micromanaging, that makes it even worse. Um, so, you know, I think really listening, uh, taking the time to hear of those around you is probably, you know, one of the most critical things you can do as a leader. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I actually love the call out of the micromanaging, because in my view, you cannot trust your people and micromanage. So there's some like, so sometimes you have to man be a manager and not a leader. But managing doesn't mean micromanaging. <laughs> so if somebody's just learning a new task or just um, trying a new project or something's incredibly visible, giving them the tools they need to be successful is managing. You might say, let's meet once a day and see where you're at and where you're headed and if I can help you and what you need. That's managing, not necessarily leading if you make a distinction. But the micromanaging is do it this way. I don't trust you to do it a way that will work. So you have to do it my way exactly step by step. That's how I see the difference. And I love that call out because you can't, employees do not feel heard or trusted if they're micromanaged. Um, That's right. Um, and then the only trick, you know, the tricky part comes, okay, so what if somebody makes a mistake? Um, and and if that happens, it, it makes you as a leader, um, reevaluate everything that you've done right and makes you want to become a micromanager um but we all make mistakes i mean people are human um and but it's but you know i'd be curious you know in another conversation to hear you know your, what like what you what advice you would give a leader at, in your position um who has dealt with a mistake or mistakes of people that reported, you know, to them or around them. Um, how do you, it's kind of like, how do you get back on the bike after you, you know, somebody's fallen off? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess really it's a, a, it's an, it depends answer, right. In terms of how big was the mistake, throwing your person under the bus for making a mistake is not the right answer. It's always the leadership needs to take the accountability and um, work with the person to fix it. It's hard to delegate knowing that you have to ultimately take the responsibility, but that's where that trust comes in. Or maybe it's faith sometimes <laughs> instead of just trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure you you heard about my leaving the Department of State. I mean, it really, uh, you know, I share basically what you just said in that, you know, that 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 in that circumstance, uh, uh, an error happened, an omission happened. Um, and, you know, it, I've always believed that accountability has to be the cornerstone of leadership. And, um, so that was, you know, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was I made the decision that I resigned, um, as a result of, you know, an error or mission made by others, because I ultimately was the, the head of the department. Um, and so I took responsibility and I resigned and, and I strongly believe that others should, should demonstrate the same accountability and we're, and young people are, you know, I find when I've gone and been speaking with students, you know, around the country, they're yearning to see more of that accountability. Uh, it's interesting. I was down, uh, in DC speaking to, a large group of students from across the country and they were asking how do we how do we get others to be sh should, to be showing that level of accountability um and i think it's it's a big question and it requires kind of uh, a wide variety of answers and approaches yeah and i think the first step is modeling right which which you did and and showing that 
you're accepting the accountability, you're modeling it. And I know that, especially with a appointed quasi-political position, there was way more than just, I'm a leader, it's the right thing to do considerations with that. Um, but just modeling that in a way that, you know, this doesn't mean I'm a horrible person. It just means I'm taking accountability. It's the right thing to do. And I move forward. And it, and it's a, it's a, seen as a positive, not as a weakness or anything like that. Yeah, interesting. So my last question for you is what's next for you? What is your next milestone, your hurdle, your challenge that you're seeing for yourself? Um, what, if people are interested in the things that you're doing and talking about, how would you want them to reach out? But mostly what's next, where are your, what's your next hurdle that you want to face? Yeah. Um, well, I love the work that I've been doing. Um, so, you know, I, we're going to be coming out with a website soon. So you could go to uh, www.athena-strategies.com. This circles back to the cross-sector collaboration and integrative uh, healthcare and other things. I really want to build the integrative democracy um, that we have in our country. And it's sort of intertwining um, some of these cross, you know, some of these theories that we've talked about in other contexts. And so I'm working on uh, what I'm referring to as the Integrative Democracy Project. So more on that soon. But um, the idea is really to do a better job at getting information about our elections, how elections work in this country, how election security works, um, and providing resources to people where they are on the ground. You know, we need to be, we need to be in the schools, we need to be, you know, in the churches, in the community centers, on TikTok or, you know, whatever takes the place of TikTok. Um, and, you know, really be making sure that people have access to accurate information about elections. And so I'm looking to build that. I've been talking with partners across the country uh, to really help strengthen both our understanding of how elections work and, and also our election security at the same time, while also rebuilding faith in our democracy. So stay tuned. That's quite a hurdle. <laughs> I can't wait to see where you go with that. That would be amazing. Thank you. Well, well thank you so much for sharing all of these lessons. I have pages of notes. I'm. Uh, it was really inspiring and informative for me and hope it was for the readers as well. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks for listening to the Evolving Executive Podcast, found everywhere podcasts are available. You can check out all of the links and resources mentioned in the episode and catch up on all of the podcast episodes at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com.